Welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio. Our reading in the New Testament comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. The author called his readers to pay attention to the truth they had heard so that they wouldn't drift away into false teachings. Paying careful attention is hard work. It involves focusing our mind, body, and senses. Listening to Christ means not merely hearing, but also obeying. We must listen carefully and be ready to carry out His instructions. These early believers we're reading about here were in danger of falling away from following Jesus. They had heard the words of the gospel, but those words had not sunk in. People raised in believing families and churches risk the same danger today. They hear the words and more or less agree But mental assent to Christ's leadership is insufficient to be Christ's disciple. Are you a Sunday school teacher, small group leader, club leader? Well, don't assume the people who comply and conform are truly committed to Christ. Get to know each person who attends your group and challenge each with the truth and implications of commitment to Christ. Don't surrender anyone to casual belief. We'll uh, read here a reference to the message God delivered through angels, and uh, that refers to the teaching that angels, as messengers for God, had brought the uh, to the law of Moses. A central theme of Hebrews is that Christ is infinitely greater than all other proposed ways to God. The author was saying that the faith of his Jewish readers was good, but faith must point to Christ. Just as Christ is greater than angels, so Christ's message is more important than theirs. No one will escape God's punishment if he or she is indifferent to the salvation offered only through Christ. Well, eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry uh, had handed down his teachings to the uh, readers of this book, this uh, book of Hebrews. Uh, These readers were second-generation believers who had not seen Christ in the flesh. They're like us. We have not seen Jesus personally. We base our belief in Jesus on the eyewitness accounts recorded in the Bible. Well, God put Jesus in charge of everything, and Jesus revealed himself to us. We do not yet see Jesus reigning on earth, but we can picture him in his heavenly glory. When you're confused by present events and anxious about the future, remember Jesus' true position and authority. He is Lord of all, and one day he will rule on earth as he does now in heaven. This truth can give stability to your decisions day by day. All right, with that, let's begin our reading today, here in the New Testament. October 31st, the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. So we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. For the message God delivered through angels has always stood firm, and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. So what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak? And God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. And furthermore, It is not angels who will control the future world we are talking about. For in one place the scriptures say, 
What are mere mortals, that you should think about them? Or a son of man, that you should care for him? Yet you made them only a little lower than the angels, and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. Now when it says, all things, it means nothing is left out, but we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. What we do see is Jesus, who was given a position a little lower than the angels, and because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. He also said, I will put my trust in him, that is, I and the children God has given me. Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Psalm 103, verses 1 through 22. David's praise focused on the good things God was doing for him. You know, it's easy to complain about life, but David's list here gives us plenty for which to praise God for. He forgives our sins, heals our diseases, redeems us from death, crowns us with love and compassion, satisfies our desires, and gives righteousness and justice. We receive all of these without deserving any of them. No matter how difficult your life's journey, you can always count your blessings, past, present, and future. When you feel as though you have nothing for which to praise God, well, just uh, read David's list. God's law was given first to Moses and the people of Israel. God's law presents a clear picture of God's character and His will for His people. It was God's training manual to prepare His people to serve Him and to follow His ways. East and West obviously can never meet. This reference here is a symbolic portrait of God's forgiveness. When he forgives our sin, he separates it from us and doesn't even remember it. Is that because God has a bad memory? <laughs> of course not. He chooses to forget. We're fragile, but God's care is eternal. Too often we focus on God as judge and lawgiver, ignoring his compassion and concern for us. When God examines our lives, he remembers our human condition. Our weakness should never be used as a justification for sin. 
His mercy takes everything into account. God will deal with you compassionately. So trust Him. Psalm 103, verses 1 through 22, the Psalm of David. Let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart I will praise His holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things He does for me. He forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord gives righteousness and justice to all who are treated unfairly. He revealed His character to Moses and His deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us, nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For His unfailing love toward those who fear Him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to His children, tender and compassionate to those who fear Him. For He knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. Our days on earth are like grass. Like wildflowers, we bloom and die. The wind blows and we are gone, as though we had never been here. But the love of the Lord remains forever with those who fear Him. His salvation extends to the children's children of those who are faithful to His covenant, of those who obey His commandments. The Lord has made the heavens His throne. From there He rules over everything. Praise the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who carry out His plans, listening for each of His commands. Yes, praise the Lord, you armies of angels who serve Him and do His will. Praise the Lord, everything He has created, everything in all His kingdom. Let all that I am praise the Lord. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 23. Smooth words may hide a wicked heart, just as a pretty glaze covers a clay pot. Hey, this is Zach Pruitt with Transformation Radio bringing you a special announcement that beginning November 3rd, Orientation Day will be moved from Tuesdays to Mondays at a new location. On November 3rd, Orientation will be held at the Hilltop Lutheran Church, which is located at 12 South Terrace Avenue in Columbus. So if you or anybody you know is struggling with addiction, homelessness, or hopelessness, come to the Hilltop Lutheran Church located on 12 South Terrace Avenue in Columbus at 10 a.m. on Mondays. If you have any questions, please call 614-991-0131 or visit our website at menslivesechanged.org for more information. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to Transformation Radio. The following audio is from the Refuge Church. More information about the Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.org. Well, good to see you again. Good morning. Um, This is week four in our series titled uh, Parable of the Two Lost Sons. And so what we've been saying and what we learn from reading this text is that I think when most people, 
When most of us have heard this, when, when most often when it's, been, when it's been taught, when it's been preached, um, people tend to focus on the younger son. Uh, people tend to focus on the younger son's sin. They tend to focus on the younger son's um, repentance or coming back home. And they tend to focus on the father's forgiveness. And so that, that almost, I would say almost all the time, has been the, the thrust of Luke 15, has been what most folks will dwell on as being something that's, that's only sentimental and that's only um, this, this son coming home and the father receiving him. And yet when we look at this text, it doesn't end with the return of the prodigal son. It doesn't end there. The story doesn't end there, right? If the story was only about the younger son, then it would end with him coming home and the father throwing this feast. But what we know is that that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. Almost half of the story includes the older son. Almost half the story is about the older son. And so what we know is that there's two sons who are both alienated from the father, who are, who are both assaulting the unity of their family, And Jesus wants us to compare them. Jesus wants us to contrast them. The younger son's lost, and that's easy for us to see. The younger son's lost, and and we can, it's blatant, we can see it. I mean, uh, we see in the text, we see him shaming his father, ruining his family, um, sleeping with prostitutes, and we say, yeah, there is someone who's lost. There's someone who, who doesn't know God. They're, that's what lostness looks like. That's sin. That's bad. That's what it looks like to be far from God. It's easy for us to do that. But Jesus, Jesus' point is that the older son is lost too. The older son's lost too. And so what we're going to, what we're going to focus on today is we're going to, we're going to really unpack a new understanding of what lostness is. And we're going to focus on the elder, the elder son. We're going we're gonna to talk about some signs of what it looks like to be an elder son. And then we're going to briefly talk about what we can do about that. And so let's read our text for today. Uh, we're going to be in Luke, Luke 15 like we've been. And we're going to read uh, from verses 25 to 32. And so Luke 15, 25 says, Now his older son was in the field. Referring to the father. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, These many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And so first, we're going to look at at this new understanding of what lostness is. And so verse 28 says, But he was angry and he refused to go in. Referring to the elder brother, he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. 
See, the older brother would have known that, that the day that the younger son came home, that this was one of the greatest days in the father's life. He wasn't oblivious. He wasn't acting out of ignorance. The fathers killed the fattened calf. This would have been an enormously expensive extravagance in a culture where even eating meat was considered a delicacy. This wasn't something they did on a daily basis. This wasn't even something they would have done on a weekly basis. I'm referring just to eating meat. I mean, the feast in and of itself, this was probably the first time that a feast like this ever happened. The whole community would have been there. And the father was overjoyed that his son had come home. And not only that, but we know from last week, and and I think I even just really noticed it in community group this week, but the idea, the text said that the son, the younger son, he came to himself. It says he came to himself, meaning like the younger son not only came home, but he realized his wickedness. He realized his wickedness. He realized his sin. Verse 18 says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. And so the crazy thing, the beautiful thing in there is there's admission of guilt. There's admission of sorrow. He's asking to be forgiven. There's total change. In a sense, this is a miracle in and of itself. The selfish, self-serving, greedy younger son is returning and he's acknowledged his sinfulness. Because oftentimes when we're in our sin, we don't see it. We don't see it. And so the older son realizes his father um, is ecstatic with joy, yet he refuses to go in to the biggest feast his father has ever put on. He refuses to go in. He won't go in. And this was, re- this was remarkable because it was just absolute disrespect. Absolute disrespect. It was his way of saying, I won't be a part of this family and I will not respect your headship of it. And so the father had to go out to plead with him, right? Just as he went out to bring in the alienated younger son into the family, now he had to do the same for the older son, for the elder brother. And so what Jesus is saying to us is pretty scandalous. And it would have been really scandalous to the, to the folks that were listening. But what he's saying to us is he's showing us that the older son is lost. And this will be on the screen. But in this parable, the father in the story represents God himself. And, and, and the meal is the feast of salvation. Right? It's salvation. It's us coming home. It's us being united again with God. In the end then, the younger son, the immoral man, comes in and is saved. But the older son, the good son, refuses to go in and is lost. Again, this is scandalous. It's it's crazy to us. It shatters the categories that that the listeners had um, for what it meant to be lost, for what it meant to know God. We said it it a couple weeks ago, but just it shatters our categories of sin. It shatters our categories of salvation. So the Pharisees who were listening to this parable knew what this meant. They would have known what this meant. It, it, it was a complete reversal of everything they believed. A complete reversal. You can almost hear them gasp as this story ends. They weren't shedding tears of joy. They were gasping in unbelief. And what is it that's keeping the elder brother out? 
Well, verse 29 tells us, it's because all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed. So it's not his sin that's keeping the elder brother out. It's actually his righteousness that's keeping him alienated from the father. And so what we've said many times, and what we're going to keep saying because we have to keep this ever before us, but that the gospel is not religion and the gospel is not irreligion. It's not the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the message, the core message of God. It's not morality and nor is it immorality. And this was completely um, astonishing and it was completely confusing to Jesus' hearers at the time. And it's probably astonishing, maybe even it's confusing to you. And so why is the older son lost? Right? We just said he's righteous. Why is he lost? So we've said that the younger brother, the younger brother wanted the father's wealth, right? He wanted the, the father's stuff, um, but not the father. So how did, he, how did he get what he wanted? Well, well, the younger son, he left home, right? He broke all the moral rules. He uh, engaged in wild living, probably like some of you, Right? But it becomes evident by the end that the elder brother also wanted selfish control of the father's wealth. How do we know that? Why? Well, he, he was very unhappy with how the father was using his possessions. Right? We see the robe, we see the ring, we see the calf. The elder brother saw his inheritance being used for the younger son. And so he didn't really want the father's happiness, right? Because the father's ecstatic with joy that the younger sons come home. But what we see here is that the elder brother didn't really want the father's happiness. He didn't really want the father's joy. He wanted the robe. He wanted the ring. He wanted the calf. But while the younger brother got control by taking his stuff and running away, we see the elder brother, he got control by staying home and being very, very good. So, there are two ways to be your own Savior and to be your own Lord. First, the one is by breaking all the rules and being very, very bad, and the other one is by keeping all the rules and being very, very good. If I can be so good that God has to answer my prayer, give me a good life and take me to heaven, then in all I do, I may be looking at Jesus to be my helper. I I may even be looking to Jesus or God to be my rewarder, but I'm not looking to God to be my savior and to be my Lord. I am then my own savior and my own Lord. The difference between a religious person and a true Christian is that the religious person obeys God to get control over God. The religious person obeys God to get things from God. But the true Christian obeys God just to get God. Just to love and please and to draw closer to God. To be in relationship with God. So what are the signs of this lostness? This kind of lostness? This kind of elder brother lostness? What are the signs? Verse 29 and 30 says, But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you. And I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat 
that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, when he came, when this son of yours, he uh, of yours came who had devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. I think some people are complete elder brothers. They go to church. Um, they obey the Bible. But they do these things out of an expectation that then God owes them something. They've never understood the biblical gospel at all, these folks. But many Christians who know the gospel, many people that could say it, could talk about grace, could talk about um, God's kingdom, could talk about God's cross, they are nonetheless like the elder brother as well. See, some, some people, despite the fact they know the gospel of salvation by grace with their heads, right? They could, they could recite it. They know it in their minds. Their hearts go back to this elder brotherishness, this default mode of self-salvation. They just do. So here, here's what um, this elder brotherishness attitude looks like. And we're going to unpack seven things. Now, there's probably, I know there's a slew more, right? But we're going to focus on seven things that an elder brother looks like. First of all, a deep anger. A deep anger, right? Verse 28 says, he became angry. That's the first sign. Why? Uh, Elder brothers believe that God owes them a comfortable and good life if they try hard and live up to good standards, to godly standards. And if they're an elder brother, they have, right? They've dotted all the I's, they've crossed all the T's. So they say, my life ought to be going really well. And when it doesn't, they become angry. They become angry. In this, they're forgetting a core thing in the gospel, and that's what? They're forgetting Jesus. They're forgetting Jesus. I don't know if any of us have thought about it this way, (laughs) But Jesus lived a better life than, than any of us, right? I, I mean, if, if you want to talk with me afterwards, we'll have to do some counseling. If you want to say that you lived a better life than Christ. But what we know is that Christ suffered terribly. Christ suffered terribly. So are you angry? Are you prone to anger? Is that anger stirred by you thinking that you, you deserve things that you didn't get. So the first thing, a deep anger. Second thing, a joyless and mechanical obedience. A joyless and mechanical obedience. Verse 29 says, I've been slaving for you, right? I've been obeying you. I've been following you, right? Elder brothers obey God as a means to an end as a way to get things they really love. Of course, obedience is hard, right? Of course, obedience is hard. But elder brothers find obedience virtually always joyless, always mechanical. They almost feel like it's like slavish in a sense. They're just going through the motions. They don't enjoy it at all. And so a question for us is, Is your obedience marked by joy? 
when people interact with you, when you come across folks, do they sense a joyful person? Do they sense a soul that's just busy and frantic and lost? Or do they sense a joyful person? When you talk about following the Lord, is there a sense of joy, of centeredness? I've said this before, but I'm not talking about happy, okay? I'm not talking about the, 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 you know, the clown smile happy. Hey, everything's good. Life's, that's not what I'm talking about. Joy is a, is a state of being. That if I believe, if, and it's hard to articulate sometimes, but if we are found in the Lord, that no matter if a good day comes around or a bad day comes around, we know who we are in Christ. And so we're able to talk about our suffering and we're able to talk about our struggles and we're able to talk about our good days. We're able to, to be happy. But even when we're not, there's a sense that we're home, we're found, we know who we are, right? Without joy, we despair. Without joy, we're, you know, we're endlessly up and down to, based on how we feel. So we're not talking about happy. Is your obedience to God marked by joy? So a deep anger, a joyless mechanical obedience, these two things mark an elder brother type person. Um, the third thing is a coldness to younger brother types. A coldness to younger brother types. See, verse 30 um, the elder brother, what did he say? He said, this son of yours. This son of yours. The, the older son, he won't even own his brother. He won't even own his brother. Elder brothers are too disdainful of others unlike themselves, that they're totally ineffective in evangelism. And this is probably going to sting, but you're probably slant towards elder brotherness if you don't have any unchristian friends. Because, because you probably feel uncomfortable around them. Because you think you're a lot better. Elder brothers who pride themselves on their doctrinal or their moral purity unavoidably begin to feel superior to those who don't have these things. And so a question for, for this, this little diagnostic would be, how do you treat those that are rough around the edges? Do you purposefully avoid them? Do you judge them? Do you feel uncomfortable around folks that aren't Christians and are blatantly unchristian? Right? We talk about this younger son. He's 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 hanging out with prostitutes. He's 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 probably just just not sober. He's just all over the place. He's wild living, right? I'm never going to be around those people. I'm holy. I'm pure. Not saying we should engage in those things. But Jesus, who did Jesus hang out with? So we're really, so probably terrible at evangelism, right? Because you don't hang out, you just hang out with people that call themselves Christians. All right, fourth thing. A lack of assurance of the Father's love. 29, you never threw me a party, right? He's like, I've done all this stuff. You never threw me a party, on it. <laughs> as long as you're trying to earn salvation, 
earn your salvation by controlling God through your goodness, you'll never be sure you've been good enough. All right? Most religions, um, there's no assurance of God's salvation, and so they're constantly in fear. Did I sin? Did I mess up? Am, am I okay? There's no, there's not this serving God because you love him, because he's accepted you. It's, did I do enough? Have I performed well enough? Have I, have I done enough good deeds? To, did I say any, am, am I okay? There's no assurance. There's restlessness. There's fear. And some signs of this are that every time something goes wrong in your life, you wonder if it's punishment. Things aren't going well. God must be mad. God must not love me. God must not care about me then. It's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. Again, if we just look at Jesus' life, we look at the apostles. The apostles, the the dudes that wrote the New Testament, was their life easy and simple and comfortable? What we have to realize is the gospel doesn't call us to comfort. Now, if you had a good week, praise the Lord, rejoice in it. But that's not the point, okay? And what we know in the gospel is that if you're following Christ, if you put your faith in Christ, there is assurance. God loves you. God accepts you. All right, let's move on. Number five. So we've got a deep anger. We've got a joyless mechanical obedience. We've got a coldness towards younger brother types. We've got a lack of assurance of the, of the father's love. What's the fifth one? The fifth one is, is, is another sign is irresolvable guilt. Irresolvable guilt. Why? Because you can't, you can't be sure that you've repented enough. So you beat yourself up. You beat yourself up over what you've done. Another sign of somebody who, who has this problem, I think, is they don't confess or repent to other people. Why? Because they're an elder brother type. They've got to seem like they've got it all together. But they've got this, they've got this irre- irresolvable guilt within them. Why? Because you can't, you can't forgive yourself. You know there needs to be blood for your sin, but you try to theoretically do it by shedding your own blood. You grovel in shame and guilt and pity. And what you have to understand is there's already been blood shed for you. Jesus' blood. There's already been blood shed for you. Sixth, and this one... This one hits home. There's a lack of any sense of intimacy with God in your prayer life. You may pray a lot of prayers asking for things, but there's not a sense of love. Your prayer life's mechanical. It's not relational. It's not awestruck. Like if you come to a place where you really realize that the God of the universe loves you, died for you, willingly accepts you, despite you, you can just talk to him. You can just be with him. And so an elder brother type, there's just this, that, that's totally out of the picture. That's totally foreign. That's not there. Last thing. Last thing. An unforgiving, judgmental spirit. If you're an elder brother type, you probably struggle 
with an unforgiving and judgmental spirit. And we see, we see this in the story. The elder brother does not want to, he doesn't want the father to forgive the younger son. Right? He, he basically is saying, he's dead to me. I'm done with him. He's not even, this son of yours, I don't even accept him. He's dead to me. Because listen, it's impossible to forgive someone if you feel like you would never, I would never do anything that bad. You have to be, you have to be something, you have to be somewhat of an elder brother to refuse to forgive. And so what this looks like is you hold on to things. You hold on to things. You harbor bitterness. For some reason, you think that your sins aren't as bad as their sins. Right? You fail to, to, you know, theoretically look in the mirror and see yourself. It says the younger brother, when he said he came to himself, what I think that means is he realized he was a sinner. He realized I've hurt my family. I've been a total jerk. And if you're an elder brother, you don't, you don't see that. And so you're judgmental because their sins are worse than mine. I, I don't sin like that. I could never sin like that. So you overlook and justify your sins while condemning and not forgiving others. What this means is you're a hypocrite. Right? It's hypocritical. It's hypocritical. So now that everyone's probably about to despair... Let's talk about what we can do about it. Because the church is mostly made up of elder brother types, right? What can we do about it? First, we have to see the uniqueness of the gospel. We have to see the uniqueness of the gospel. Because listen, if you're an elder brother type, your first response is like, tell me what I need to do so I can earn it, so I can begin to fix myself. And that's not the initial answer. You have to see the uniqueness of the gospel because look at this. Jesus ends the parable with the lostness of the older brother in order to get across the point that this is actually a more dangerous spiritual condition to have than the younger brother. That blows my mind when I really think about that. Do you get that? The the story ends and, and the elder brother we don't know if he, ever, if he ever makes it into the feast, the, the salvation feast, but the younger brother does. This is why churches can often be the most corrupt and toxic places you'll ever be. Why? Because they're filled with elder brothers who are sadly lost in their self-righteousness. Lost in their self-righteousness. See, Think about it. The younger brother knew he was alienated from the father. He knew it. He came to himself. He said, Father, I've sinned against you and the family. Let me, be a ser- let me just be a servant. Let me work in the field. Let me, let me, and, and the father would not have it. But he knew he was a sinner. Elder brothers don't. See, if you tell moral religious people who are trying to be good, trying to obey, trying to do all these things so God will bless them, If you try to tell them that they're alienated from God, they'll just be offended. And that's my fear about this morning, is that this is the message where you're all like, no, right? You're all offended. You're all ticked off. 
You want to take me outside and beat me? <laughs> right? Because the big idea here is if you know you're sick, you go to a doctor. If you don't know you're sick, you won't. You'll just die. And elder brother types don't, don't think they're sick. They don't think they're sick. They don't think they have a problem. I'm fine. I'm good. Leave me alone. I do this to get things from God. I, I, I do this because, see, most people, they try Christianity because they think it works. Meaning, they become a Christian because they think it will give them a better life. And so that means the moment it becomes difficult, the moment it becomes hard, the moment that sacrifice comes into the picture, I'm out of here. And this will be on the screen. We've said this before, but again, we've got to keep coming back to it because I don't think it sticks in the first time. It probably takes a hundred times. But moralistic religion works on this principle. I obey, therefore God accepts me. It starts with me. It doesn't start with God. It starts with me and my effort, me and my good works, me and what I can do. But the gospel works on a whole different principle, which says I am accepted by God through Christ, therefore I obey. Completely different starting point. The gospel starts with God. It ends with God. It's all about God's grace towards sinners. And religion is all about me and my works and my effort. And if I do all these things, then God will give me pretty things. And if he doesn't, well, then screw God. are two radically different they are absolutely opposing dynamics yet and this is what's crazy yet both types of people go to church they might even sit next to each other in church they both pray they both read the ten commandments they both try to you know fellowship together right radically different radically different internally and because they do these things for radically different reasons they produce radically different results different kinds of character how can we detect these things one the one produces anger joyless i mean we just talked about some of it anger joyless compliance superiority and security and a condemning spirit the other slowly but inevitably produces contentment, joy, humility, poise, and a forgiving spirit. So the the difficult question, and it's okay if you're struggling, we're all struggling, but the question we need to wrestle with and what you need to ask yourself right now is what are you producing? Not what are you making, what are you doing, but what, what is coming out of your heart? What is coming out in your actions? See, Paul, later on, um, in a letter to the Corinthian church, he likens our Christ-like character to that of fruit. And so, so what he does is, is um, he says that God-like fruit looks like contentment, joy, humility, poise, and a forgiving spirit, and so on and so forth. But he says that fleshly, lost fruit looks a lot like anger and joyless compliance and superiority and insecurity and a condemning spirit. And so which are you? What are you prone to? Which, which of those most oftentimes marks your life? 
Because here's one of the big ideas. Unless a person in a congregation knows the difference between general religiosity and the true gospel, people will constantly fall into moralism and elder brotherishness. Constantly. This is our default mode. Why? Why do we always go here? Because we want to save ourselves. Because we want to earn it. Because we think we're better than we are. And so what happens is, if that kind of church, or, and if, if, we, if we call younger brothers to receive Christ and live for him without making this distinction clear, then they will automatically think that they're being invited to become elder brothers. <laughs> How crazy is that? Right? So, hey, hey, come on in and become religious and boring and self-righteous, and a gossip, and a complainer, and a comparer, and a grump. Come on in. (laughs) No wonder most people say, no thanks. You can keep your God, you can keep your religion, you can keep your church. If you have controlling tendencies and you love to follow rules and you like to think you're good and you wonder why no one wants to hang out with you, you're probably an elder brother. And to be honest, elder brothers suck the life out of people around them because they're so self-absorbed. Because if I do good, then God owes me. If I do good, then then I'll have a good life. It's all about me. And so I use God to get the things I want. It's not Christian. It's not Christian. This isn't the gospel. And so unfortunately, and I'm almost done, I know this is a heavy message, it just, it is what it is, we gotta talk about it, right? Lots of churches talk about how to reach the lost younger brother, but often... (laughs) Younger brothers aren't there because the church is filled with elder brothers. And so you you see a lot of churches talking about how can we reach these people? And they're a bunch of elder brothers. And so, you know, and how you can see this is, is are there any people on the fringes in your church? Are are there people that you hang out with that are struggling and that are, that are, that are struggling with addiction and, and uh, pornography and drugs and alcohol and they, and they have a foul mouth and, and, and they hang out in bad places and they struggle. Of course we shouldn't condone this, but if those people don't feel like they can interact with us and, they can hold a, and we can hold a conversation with them and we're not just totally unintelligible to them, then we're elder brothers. And they'll never be your friend. And the gospel will never reach them through you. But if we look back to the beginning of this parable, who was drawing near to Jesus? The sinners and the prostitutes. Who draws near to you? Probably no one. (laughs) I'm sorry, that's really mean. (laughs) I don't mean that. I'm just, just, it's family, right? So I'm just (laughs) speaking my mind. (laughs) Uh, I'm preaching to myself, okay? So... Man. <laughs> wow. I need to calm down. I'm a little too comfortable. <laughs> so first, we need to see the uniqueness of the gospel. And secondly, we have, to, we have to see the vulnerability of Jesus. 
And this is where it gets beautiful. We have to see the vulnerability of Jesus because remember again whom Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to um, his enemies. And by enemies, what do I mean? He's speaking to the men that he knows are going to kill him. Isn't that crazy? What if you knew that somebody was going to murder you and you're just talking with them beforehand? Like, hey, I'm going to tell you a parable. (laughs) You know? So on one hand, this is an astonishingly bold um, challenge to them. He's talking to those who want to kill him. He's telling them that they're lost. I mean, how bold is that? You're going to kill me. I'm going to try to like say things so you'll like me. He's like, hey, you're lost. You're going you're gonna to burn. You know? Like, it's bold. Goodness. That they, he's telling them they, fundament, they fundamentally misunderstand God's salvation. They fundamentally misunderstand God's purpose in the world. That they're trampling over the heart of God. He calls them vipers in another text. You brood of vipers. Like, gee, many Christmas, right? And so Jesus, he was this no happy-go-lucky, tell them what they want to hear rabbi. But at the same time, what we have to see is that he's being very loving and tender. How so? How so? When the father comes out to the older brother, that's Jesus pleading with his enemies. Right? So what are we saying? He's urging them. He's pleading with them in a sense to see their fatal error. He doesn't scream at his enemies. He he doesn't smite them. But what is he doing? He tells them a story. He's lovingly urging them to repent and to come into his love. That's what we're to do. Isn't this cool? Jesus tells them the truth that's offensive, but he does so in a way that they can understand. And he does so in a way that some might believe and repent. He tells them a story. He doesn't smite them. He doesn't scream at them. He tells them a story about how they're lost and how to be found. I want us to see that because, because so what we have here is, is, is I see a foreshadowing of that great moment on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them for they know not what they do. See, this is love toward his enemies. And this love, this vulnerability, it cost him his life. It cost him his life. On the cross, instead of blasting his enemies, he lovingly took the penalty of their sins on himself. Romans 5.10 says, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. That's good news. That's good news. Knowing what he did for us, listen to me, knowing what he did for us must drain us of our self-righteousness and our insecurity. It must. If you're an elder brother, you go from two extremes. You go from pride to despair. Pride Pride when you think you're doing well and despair when you think you've missed the mark because it's all about you. And so if you think you've done everything you need to do to, to, to serve God, then you get prideful and you think, oh, I've missed it. And, oh, man, things are going bad. Oh, I despair. I want to die. I quit. I'm take my back and go home. I'm done. Right? We were so sinful that he had to die for us. Isn't that crazy? You know what's beautiful though? Is we were so loved that he was glad to do it. We were so loved that he he was glad to die for us. And so what this does is it takes away both our pride, takes away our despair, (laughs) takes away our fear, 
and all these other things that makes us elder brothers. So let's put our faith in Jesus. Let's repent of our sin. All right, would you pray with me? Let's bow our heads. Lord, thank you for, and I just, words, this is where language just falls short. I don't think we fully will ever know what it cost for us to be able to be in a relationship with you. But I thank you that we can be. And it's going to take a miracle for elder brothers to see their lostness. And of course, that's a metaphor, so there's sisters in this room that struggle with this as well. But God, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a miracle because if we struggle with this, it means that there's something deep inside our heart, deep inside our soul, deep inside our psyche that's trying to, we're trying to be our own God and we're trying to be our own Lord. And we're using the church and we're using religion and we're using um, our effort and we're using all these things in order to, to, to be, think that we're good. And the gospel gives us a firm rebuke and a really firm hug because it says, no, you're not good. In fact, you're terrible. So much so I had to die for you. But then Jesus, you come in and you embrace us and you say, but, but I chose to do so, to take all of the penalty of your sin, the penalty of, of you messing up and screwing up and the pain it's caused you and the pain it's caused your family, and the pain it's caused this world. And, 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 if, and if you will follow me, if you'll believe that this is in fact true, then you're forgiven. And you're welcome into the feast. You're welcomed into the family. I call you son. I call you daughter. So Lord, I pray that we'd see this... Um, as a reality. I pray that those of us in this room that are, are true Christians, that we would have assurance, that we'd have joy, that we begin to repent of all these things and that we would just follow you for you, that we'd stop trying to earn things, we'd stop trying to um, get things from you, but we just love you and realize that, that, my goodness, there's so many more blessings than, you know, there's more blessings than there could have been. Give me a lot more than I deserved. There's just this element of just the graciousness of grace. Wayne Grudem says that grace is, I mean, I've heard so many good quotes this morning from Tyler, but just, just Wayne Grudem says that grace is goodness towards those that only deserve punishment. And rightfully understood, we all deserve punishment because of sin, as Romans says, but you invited us in because of your sacrifice, because of your sinless life, because of the cross. and you're inviting us to be a part of a new kingdom. We talk about the kingdom a lot, and Lord, I believe what that means in Scripture is we're all trying to be our own king and our own Lord. And we talk about the kingdom, God's kingdom. What it means is I am repenting of being the king of my life, and I'm, I am inviting you to be king of my life. And that my hope is actually to advance that in the culture and in my sphere of influence, that I'm gonna, I am going 
to do everything within my effort that God would be the king, that Jesus would be the king, not me. I'm a crummy king. So just uh, be praised, be glorified. We love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from the Refuge Church in Grove City, Ohio. For more information about the Refuge Church, please visit therefugechurch.org.